reading tonight is taken from Genesis chapter 4 and can be found on page 6 of the Bibles in front of you. Adam made love to his wife Eve and she became pregnant and gave birth to Cain. She said, with the help of the Lord I have brought forth a man. Later she gave birth to his brother Abel. Now Abel kept flocks and Cain worked the soil. In the course of time, Cain brought some of the fruits of the soil as an offering to the Lord. But Abel also brought an offering, fat portions from some of the firstborn of his flock. The Lord looked with favour on Abel and his offering, but on Cain and his offering, he did not look with favour. So Cain was very angry and his face was downcast. Then the Lord said to Cain, Why are you angry? Why is your face downcast? If you do what is right, will you not be accepted? But if you do not do what is right, sin is crouching at your door. It desires to have you, but you must rule over it. Now Cain said to his brother Abel, Let's go out to the field. While they were in the field, Cain attacked his brother Abel and killed him. Then the Lord said to Cain, Where is your brother Abel? I don't know, he replied. Am I my brother's keeper? The Lord said, What have you done? Listen, your brother's blood cries out to me from the ground. Now you are under a curse and driven from the ground, which opened its mouth to receive your brother's blood from your hand. When you work the ground, it will no longer yield its crops for you. You will be a restless wanderer on the earth. Cain said to the Lord, My punishment is more than I can bear. Today you are driving me from the land, and I will be hidden from your presence. I will be a restless wanderer on the earth, and whoever finds me will kill me. But the Lord said to him, Not so. Anyone who kills Cain will suffer vengeance seven times over. Then the Lord put a mark on Cain, so that no one who found him would kill him. So Cain went out from the Lord's presence and lived in the land of Nod, east of Eden. Cain made love to his wife, and she became pregnant and gave birth to Enoch. Cain was then building a city, and he named it after his son Enoch. To Enoch was born Irad, and to Irad was the father of Mahujel, and Mahujel was the father of Methusel, and Methusel was the father of Lamech. Lamech married two women, one named Ada and the other Zillah. Ada gave birth to Jabal. He was the father of those who live in tents and raise livestock. His brother's name was Jubal. He was the father of all who plays stringed instruments and pipes. Zilla also had a son, Tubal Cain, who forged all kinds of tools out of bronze and iron. Tubal Cain's sister was Namar. Lamech said to his wives, Ada and Zillah, listen to me. Wives of Lamech, hear my words. I have killed a man for wounding me, 
a young man for injuring me. If Cain is avenged seven times, then Lamech seventy-seven times. Adam made love to his wife again, and she gave birth to a son and named him Seth, saying, God has granted me another child in the place of Abel, since Cain killed him. Seth also had a son, and he named him Enosh. At that time, people began to call on the name of the Lord. Judah, thank you so much for reading that quite long passage uh, from the book of Genesis. My name's David. I'm a member of the staff team here at Bishop Hannington. Um, If you've been coming along on a regular basis, you'll know that over the last few evenings, we've started a series of studies in the very opening chapters of the Bible, the early chapters uh, from the book of Genesis. And today we come to chapter 4. And before we go any further, let's ask God to help us as we try to understand what this chapter is all about. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we do thank you for these opening chapters from the book of Genesis. Uh, Father, they're in many ways foundational. They set the scene for everything that is going to follow all the way through to the end of the book. And so, Father, because they're foundational, because they're important, Father, we pray that you'd help us to understand them well and actually see how they relate to us in our situation today. Father, we ask this in your name. Amen. If you visit your local bookshop, if you check out the TV listings, listings, you'll soon realize that people everywhere seem to have an appetite for crime. Whether it be true life, crime or fiction, books, films, television series about crime sell well, and most actors and writers seem to be doing pretty well out of it, really. Uh, Crime certainly pays if you're in the entertainment industry. But, you know, if you're going to be a real success in the crime business, you really do need to choose your crime carefully. Have you noticed that there are very, very few television shows about policemen dealing with persistent parking offences? Have you noticed that? There are very few about fraud. Relatively few about policemen dealing with burglaries. But when it comes to murder, it's open season. Just about every second program seems to be about some form of poor old detective grappling with crime. Novelists, scriptwriters these days, they seem to be determined to transform the most tranquil place they can imagine into a scene of grisly mayhem. Something that's actually quite out of all proportion to its likelihood or frequency. I'm told that the murder rate in the University of Oxford is very low indeed, but you'd never know this if you watch Morse or Lewis or Endeavour, would you? The reality is that last year, to the, to the end of March, there were just under 5 million crimes reported to the police. Of those, 723 were murders. And just to put that into perspective, in the same year, there were just over 120,000 sexual offences. There were just over 2,000 domestic burglaries and almost 650,000 instances of fraud. And I was actually one of those instances because I was a victim of fraud during that period of time. And yet people have a fascination and a horror of murder that is all out of all proportion to its likelihood. Why might that be? Why the fascination? 
Why the horror? I suspect that it's because murder is the ultimate taking away of something. It takes away a person's future. Whatever they might have done or enjoyed will never happen. For family and friends, someone who might have enriched and benefited them has been taken away from them. And of course, that's just thinking in human terms, isn't it? In spiritual terms, the consequences are even more serious because that person is denied the opportunity of repentance and reconciliation with God if they hadn't made that step of faith already. It is the ultimate denial. It is the final theft. We can suffer loss of all sorts of kinds, serious loss. And if there remains life and hope and time, yes, there is the possibility of some measure of restoration and renewal. But not in the case of murder. In this life, it can never, ever be put right. It's the ultimate affront to a person's rights and a person's dignities. And that, on one level, is what Genesis 4 is all about. It's about murder. But to see this chapter as the world's first murder mystery is to perhaps oversimplify what's actually going on. So before we look at the crime scene, uh, we need to set that crime scene against the background about what was actually going on. And when we look at the background of what was going on, we see a background of extraordinary human progress. There were two things happening in this chapter. And while it's easy to see the violence in the foreground, it's easy to also overlook what was going on in the background. And that was material progress. Life was getting better in Genesis chapter 4. But it wasn't material progress just for the sake of it. It was actually humanity getting on with its God-given responsibility. In Genesis chapter 2, God had commissioned mankind to actually care for the world that he had created. And even in Genesis 3, after the fall, that commission to use the world in order to meet human needs wasn't taken away. It was going to get more difficult, but it wasn't taken away. And humanity, in chapter 4, we have a picture of this working out in practice. Right at the beginning of the chapter, you see the development of specialisms in agriculture. Abel kept flocks and Cain worked the soil. One was a livestock farmer, the other was an arable farmer working in different areas, developing different skills, uh, producing different kinds of produce because they specialized. I guess they would have done things more efficiently. And also, inevitably, they would have come, become more dependent on one another. You actually see right at the beginning at uh, the development of society and the idea of community beginning to emerge with people contributing different things to society uh, and benefiting from one another's activities and labor. And as you read through the chapter, there's more evidence of this. In verse 17, for instance, we read about the building of perhaps what was the first city. Now, it wouldn't have been a terribly big place, I guess, but it was the first. It was the first opportunity where people were deliberately choosing to actually live close to one another uh, for mutual benefit, I guess, and for mutual protection. And later on in the chapter, there's more evidence of human development and activity. In verse 20, there's another reference to animal husbandry. In the next verse, there's the reference to the development of music. People had more time on their hands. It wasn't a bitter struggle for survival anymore. They had time to enjoy themselves, and they were developing ways to enjoy themselves. 
And then the next verse, you have references to the development of technology and equipment, the development of tools, industry and technology. Now, we shouldn't necessarily view any of this negatively. The earth was given to God to meet the needs of men and women, and human beings were taking the initiative to make life better, to make it life more secure, to make it more comfortable, uh, to make it more enjoyable, to make it more leisured. You know, as I was thinking about this, it struck me that the times in which we live are a bit like the times described in Genesis 4. You know, over the last... 200 years, for instance, uh, humanity has made extraordinary progress in so many areas of life. Someone from, say, 200 years ago uh, coming to Hove in 2017 would be astonished by how much convenience there is in life, how much labor has been taken out of life compared to the time that they know. Over the last 200 years, we've seen a succession of technological marvels. In my lifetime, we've seen a succession of technological marvels. It was in 1977, I had my first real job. I was an office manager in Leicester, and I was cold, cold by a salesman who wanted to sell me a word processor. There was a box, and there was a screen, and there was a keyboard, but it wasn't a computer. All it did was processed words. You couldn't do spreadsheets on it. You couldn't do databases on it. Nobody had ever heard of emails. Uh, You certainly couldn't play games on the thing. Literally, all this thing did was process words. And it wasn't very good at handling fonts either. It cost one and a half times my annual salary in 1977. In case you're wondering, we didn't buy it. Just think, today most of us probably have in our pocket something with vastly more computing power than that extraordinarily extensive word processor that I was offered. Just think about all the things that it can do. Just think about how much you paid for it. We have lived through a time with the most extraordinary changes. Changes in many ways for the better. Life is a lot more comfortable. Uh, We can do things that certainly when I was growing up, you know, I, I couldn't conceive of. Yes, there's lots of evidence that within our society, life is getting easier and more comfortable and by one measure better. And I suspect that in the time of Genesis 4, that's the way people saw things as well. You know, one of the things that the book of Genesis, and Genesis 4 in particular, tells us is that material progress, technological progress, cultural progress may well be enjoyable, may well be beneficial, but it's not the only measure of real progress. And that the true measure of real progress is actually moral and spiritual. And against that measure, when you look at Genesis 4, the judgment has to be what progress Last week we were thinking about Genesis 3 and the decision made by Adam and Eve to disobey God and the consequences that flowed from it. There was a choice, Adam and Eve made that choice and there was an effect, a consequence. We often call what happened the fall, a shorthand for the damage that was done to relationships caused by that decision to disobey God. 
It didn't bring freedom. It brought damage. The relationship between humankind and creation was damaged. Relationships between people were damaged. And most fundamentally, the relationship between humanity and God was damaged. For instance, the relationship between humankind and creation, it was still there, but it was much more difficult. It was going to be through painful toil that men and women were going to get their food from creation. And Genesis 4 illustrates the breakdown in relationships between people that stemmed from this same cause of bad choice and disastrous effect. And one of the things it tells us is that this breakdown in relationships wasn't gradual. It wasn't a case that things tended to get worse, but over a long period of time. What it tells us is that this breakdown in relationships with, between people got very bad and very quickly. It was like walking over the edge of the cliff. I mean, what is the first crime recorded in the Bible? The first sin. Is it something minor? No, it's murder. And a particularly terrible murder because it's not the murder of a stranger, but it's the murder of a sibling. We have moved from the fall to perhaps one of the worst things that a human being can do to another human being. And in an incredibly short space of time. The story was read to us by Judith. Cain and Abel, the sons of Adam and Eve, as we have seen, they came to specialize in different forms of agriculture. Abel was a livestock farmer. Cain was an arable farmer. And in due course, they decided that it would be a good idea to bring an offering to God. Abel brought something from his flock. Cain brought the produce from his harvest. But only Abel's offering was accepted by God. Why? We're not told in so many words why God favored Abel's offering but didn't favor Cain's offering. But we can identify two possible, actually probable reasons uh, why this happened. With hindsight, for instance, uh, we know, from what we know of the sacrificial system that was established by God after the Exodus, we can see that Abel's offering involved the shedding of blood and the giving up of a life, whereas Cain's offering involved none of that. But there may be a more specific reason uh, why uh, Abel's offering was accepted and Cain's offering wasn't that's hinted in the passage. You see, Abel's offering was special. If you think back to the reading that Judith read for us, Abel brought fat portions from some of the firstborn of his flock. Abel gave God the best that he had from the firstborn of the flock, and not just any old offcut, but the best bits of that animal that was killed. He gave the God the best that he had. And by contrast, the descriptions of Cain's offering is, well, it's kind of underwhelming, isn't it? Cain brought some of the fruits of the soil as an offering to the Lord. I believe that we're supposed to spot that there was a qualitative difference between those two offerings. Cain brought something to God, but Abel brought the best. But did you notice that while Cain's offering was rejected, Cain wasn't rejected by God as a person. Instead, God reached out to Cain sought to encourage him and to warn him. And that's where it goes wrong for Cain. Because instead of embracing God, reaching out to him, 
he decides to embrace his anger. And one thing leads to another. In his, he, Cain lets his anger be his motivator. He lures his victim into a secluded place where he thinks no one will see what's going on and kills him. It's brutal, but one of the other things you may have noticed that it was also futile. You see, Cain's real issue is with God. So why kill Abel? What's the point? Abel may be a gone, but as the reading makes very clear, God will still be there. And that's the point. One of the effects of sin is not just that it distorts our actions, it also distorts our thinking. Cain's issue was with God. But his sinful anger has got such a grip in him that he could see no further than his brother. What did he imagine that murdering Abel would actually do? God would still be there. Wouldn't change that. Did he imagine that in some twisted way, that with Abel out of the way, God's attitude to him would change in some way? Can you make sense of that? The effect of the fall was not just about the external, the things that people do. It was really about the internal. It's not so much about what people do with their hands as what's going on inside their heads. Their thinking becomes faulty, allowing themselves to become dominated by bad thoughts and emotions. And it's that that turns into bad actions and bad deeds. You know, all of us are going to be disappointed from time to time. It's life. Get used to it. From time to time, things are going to happen to us which we feel, possibly rightly, are unfair. From time to time, there are going to be situations where, well, it's very easy to see envy and jealousy as an easy response. We can't protect ourselves from disappointment. It will happen. But when it does, don't be like Cain. Don't embrace your disappointment. Don't embrace your jealousy. Don't embrace your sense of unfairness. Don't let it turn into anger. Don't embrace your anger. Because it will only take us to a bad place. Earlier I suggested that one of the key things that this chapter of Genesis tells us is that after the fall, social and public morality declined quickly and seriously. And this chapter goes on to tell us about a second murder. Many people have heard about Cain and Abel, but perhaps not so many will have heard about Lamech. We read his story from verses 19 to 24, and he, perhaps more than anyone else, shows the contrast between the material and social progress that was being made and the moral and spiritual decline. Lamech had a talented family. All those developments in agriculture and in the arts and in technology and industry, well, it was his kids that were actually driving this. He had a talented family, and yet... The thing that he's remembered for is summed up in verse 23 when he boasts to his wives, I have killed a man for wounding me, a young man for injuring me. If Cain is avenged seven times, then Lamech 77 times. Now you can see some obvious similarities between Cain and Lamech. 
they both work on the assumption that violence is a good way to deal with difficulties and situations you don't like. Their actions are both out of proportion to the situation. Cain's murder of Abel made no sense. Lamech's murder of this young man was completely out of proportion. And they both show signs of disturbed thinking. Just think about the second half of Lamech's statement. If Cain is avenged seven times, then Lamech is avenged 77 times. What does that actually mean? Does it make any sense, really? But there is one difference between them. You see, there is a sense in which Cain tries to distance himself from his actions with evasive answers to God's pointed question, where is your brother Abel? Not so Lamech. He boasts about his actions. While Cain seems to show some remorse, maybe, Lamech shows no remorse whatsoever. Where Cain succumbs to his sin, Lamech seems to exult in it. Vengeance had been reserved for God by God for himself. Cain, did you notice that? Even Cain was under God's protection. It was God's business to deal with the murderer. It was not for others to take the law into their own hands. God had passed the judgment and that was that. Whereas Lamech, well, he just sidesteps all of that and takes vengeance upon himself. He gets it totally out of proportion and his actions become wanton. They become brutal. Here's a question to think about. Do you ever find yourselves showing off about some aspect of wrongdoing in your life? It may not be all that serious. You probably wouldn't show off about something that was really, really serious, I'm sure, but something a bit more minor and trivial. Do you ever find yourself showing off about it? Do you like to put yourself out as being a bit of a lad, a bit of a ladette? Or perhaps you may want to chose some age-appropriate alternative. But, you know, to put yourself across as being, you know, a little bit on the edge, a little bit risky, boasting and wrongdoing. Do you really think that's a good idea? I suspect that boasting about wrongdoing, no matter how trivial it is, is not a good sign, and it's not setting off on a good road that's going to lead to good things. It's more likely to lead to bad ones. You know, all this is pretty bleak stuff. Forget the agricultural progress, forget the social progress, forget the technological progress, forget the cultural progress. The truth is that the world of Genesis 4 had become a very dangerous place. A world where people murder one another, and for what? Where the first response to difficulty is violence. A world where the only law is the law of retaliation. In a world... Well, in a world like that, what hope is there for the able-bodied, never mind the weak? These incidents show us what happens to humanity when it's fallen away from obeying God. It's the first picture of what happened after the fall. And it's a terrible picture. And the question that we need to ask today is, has anything fundamentally changed since then? 
Here in Hove, we may be a bit insulated from it, but you don't need to read too much news to realize that in today's world, there are far too many people whose root is violence works and might is right. And against this background, is there anything very much that we can say that's hopeful? Well, I think there are at least three things that we can say that are hopeful. And the first of this is that in this world where violence is viewed as something that works, in this world where people think that might is right, God still wants to draw people away from sin and back to himself. Think back to when we were thinking about uh, the story of Cain and Abel, at the offerings that they brought. Remember, Cain was not condemned by God from bringing an inadequate offering. His offering was rejected, but as a person he was not. Even though he was overcome by anger, maybe because he was overcome by anger, God makes a point of reaching out to him with words of promise, warning and encouragement. Verse 7, If you do what is right, will you not be accepted? But if you do not do what is right, sin is crouching at your door. It desires to have you. But you must rule over it. Promise, you will be accepted. Warning, sin is crouching at your door. Encouragement, you must rule over it. It's an invitation that's repeated in the New Testament in James 4 and verse 7. Submit yourselves then to God. Resist the devil and he will flee from you. Come near to God, and he will come near to you. Our God is a God who reaches out to people. Reaches out to people who are on the edge. Reaches out to people who are in risky situations. Reaches out to people who face moral challenges and struggle to cope with them. Sin is a real power within us. It wants to take each one of us over. Sometimes it succeeds. But God is there for us as well with promises, warnings, and encouragement. And in Jesus, a real way of escape. Cain turned his back on it. But that doesn't mean we have to. But secondly, God doesn't ignore sin and wrongdoing. Yes, if you look at Genesis 4, if you look at today's world, you can get this impression that the world is a terrible place and there's not much that can be done about it. That isn't true. Cain, for instance, doesn't get away from it. You know, one of the striking things about both chapters 3 and 4 of Genesis is that when things go wrong, God is on the scene immediately. It's not a case of calling 999 and waiting forever for something to happen. God is there asking the right questions. In Genesis 3, saying, Who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten from the tree from which I commanded you not to eat? Or in Genesis 4, Where is your brother Abel? And a few verses later in verse 10, saying to Cain, Listen, your brother's blood cries out to me from the ground. That blood belonged to God. And it cried out to God for justice. Murder was an attack on God's creation and God's possession. And God wasn't going to ignore it. For Cain, there was a second expulsion. Just as Adam and Eve had been expelled from the Garden of Eden, so Cain was expelled from 
the good things that the land could still provide him. When you work the ground, it will no longer yield crops to you. You will be a restless wanderer on the earth. Sin and wrongdoing matter to God, and we won't get away with it. One of the messages that runs throughout the Bible is well summed up in the book of Hebrews, chapter 9, verse 27. People are destined to deny once, and after that, to face judgment. But finally, you know, as we think about the frightening picture presented for us in this chapter, there is something that we can do about it. The chapter traces two things. On the one hand, the development of technology and the arts and all that sort of stuff. And on the other hand, a growth of violence and uncertainty. And this continues to be the case. We live in an age of marvels, a time when progress seems to be moving faster and faster, a world that seems to be offering more and more opportunities, but also a time that has seen more human misery and suffering than perhaps any that's gone before it. Think of the migrant crisis, tens of thousands of people on the move because in their own countries they face the threat of wanton and unpredictable violence, starvation and death. Think of human trafficking. Think of gang culture and knife culture within our own nation. We live in a world where the effects of the fall are all too obvious. What can we do? Well, right at the end of the chapter it tells us that at that time, people began to call on the name of the Lord. The one thing that Cain didn't do, the one thing that I suspect would never have occurred to Lamech to do, but others, perhaps people like Seth, whose birth we read read about towards the end of the chapter, did recognize that in a world where sin sin and wrongdoing is rampant, The only thing to do was to turn to God. And so can we, in prayer, but also in worship and in commitment. Progress? What progress? Hope? What hope? Well, hope only in this. At that time, people began to call on the name of the Lord. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, in a world that has gone wrong in so many, many ways, help us to resist the devil and help us to call in the name of the Lord. Thank you that we can be confident that if we call on your name, you will be with us. Amen.